nā tikanā a iwi o te ao whānui. Many cultures, one world. E nā iwi nā mana he mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa, ko Maraia Rakraku tēnei. Ko Justin Murray tēnei, welcome to Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National. In October last year, Māori leaders from around the country gathered in Wellington to pay homage to Sir Graham Latimer. We have an archival recording of him from the 1970s where he outlines the various legislation used to disempower the Māori economic base. Because whether we want to hear the word or not, you can't ignore that this year's biggest event in Aotearoa, and indeed throughout the whole world, is the recession. I've acquired a whole new vocab layoffs, cutbacks, losses, restructure, downsize. And how are all those things going to affect Māori? Richard Jones reckons he knows. He heads Potama Business Trust, an organisation that supports and fosters growth for small Māori businesses. And he's noticing Māori are falling back on their natural entrepreneurial skills. I, an example of that is you, um, I talked with a cafe owner last week and cafes are in a pretty competitive Me Too sort of sector. And this is a young Māori woman, probably I think about 24 years old. So she's got a cafe and what she's doing is she's gone into out-catering and then she's also applied for a BYO licence so she could uh, offer evening meals. Yesterday, the event that brings together 8,000 high school students representing 60 Auckland secondary schools and showcasing Polynesian performance closed. We're talking with Māori director Tania Kororia about the ASB Polyfest. Plus, Rio Himopo of Trinity Roots is with us. I'm Mariah Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray, and it's chock-a-block full, so let's get on with it. You're listening to Teika, Radio National. In his lifetime, Sir Graham Latimer has worked in many levels of Māori development. His achievements have been many. He was one of the very first appointments to the Waitangi Tribunal and chaired the New Zealand Māori Council. So let's go back to the 1970s where he speaks about the personal impact various legislation had on the way Māori went about their lives. In the very early stages of our life, we struggled like everybody else in the Manganui County to survive. And in the 1920s and the early 30s, we were not able, as Maoris, to obtain the social welfare benefit or any benefit from government because, in fact, we were not a statistic in this country, we not, were not registered. And the law said that the Māori people or the native people of New Zealand were not entitled to social security benefits of any description because they could derive their living from their ancestral lands and from their customary uses of the sea. And I contend today that the total shoreline around New Zealand is customary Māori land. That's the early part. And I thought that it was important that we know that it wasn't until 1935 that Māori people actually started to become a statistic of this country and they were not taken into consideration until 1943 when the first census of Māoridom was taken. After I grew up, I left home and then went overseas and came back 
where I became interested in the Kuiper Harbor. I used to listen to the old people talking about the Kuiper Harbor and how they used to be able to go out and get whatever kind of food they wanted to get from the harbor. But they became concerned as time went on because the 1945 Māori Social and Economic Act vested the authority of Māori fishing reserves, Māori fishing grounds, in the Minister of Māori Affairs. That was to continue into the 50s. And in the 1953 Māori Affairs Act, it continued to vest that authority. But as time progressed, and the Hun report was released, it began then to put Maori fishing rights in jeopardy. It was during that period that the judge of the Maryland Court in the Taitokarau area was asked to go out and look at all the Maori reserve areas. And so he did that around the country. And having stepped them out and placed pegs in the various areas, it was taken for granted by the Māori people that they were in fact legally set aside. In fact, they were not set aside because the trustees of those Māori reserves did not know that they had to apply to the Māori land court to have those reserves ratified. In 1961, we received a letter then from the Minister of Marines, Mr. Gerard, asking every Māori committee in New Zealand to apply for their areas to be set aside as Māori reserves. Fortunately, I was the secretary of our Māori committee at that time, and we applied to have ours legally set aside in the Kaipara Harbour. There were only two other areas, Pongaroa and uh, that applied for those areas to be set aside. Because of the ignorance, I suppose that's the only way that you can term it, of the letter that, or the circular that we received, the rest of the Māori committees, or the Māori people, did not in fact apply for their reserves to be set aside. So when I became a member of the Tatagara District Council in 1963, that was one of the main items on our agenda. And it continued to be one of the main items on the agendas of almost every district council and every tribe throughout New Zealand. We followed on, of course, at that stage from the hearing of the 90 Mile Beach. And I was very fortunate just prior to 1963 that I had the, the good fortune of taking uh, Walter Tepanier, Henari uh, Piripi, and Eru Poe down to Aotea in search of some assistance for the case. And it was during those periods when you drive along the road that you have an opportunity of listening to the old people talking about their frustrations of the laws of this country. We continued the council and the district council to try to press the government for changes to give greater recognition uh, to Māori uh, 
fisheries areas right through until 1967. I might say, Mr Chairman, I'm sorry, 1962, when they changed the Maori Welfare Act, they, they then placed the jurisdiction of the fisheries under the Minister of Marines. It was taken away from the Maori people without consultation. At no stage were we consulted, asked whether we wanted to go under a, the Minister of Marines. We were taken away from under the Minister of Maori Affairs without consultation. So in 1966, we had quite a big hui because at that stage, the Minister of Marines or the Minister of Fisheries was starting to flex their authority. And they were starting to disturb the people up and down the, the country. At that stage, Mr. Scott, I think, was the Minister of Fisheries. And I went to him and said that you are frustrating the people with the laws that you're bringing in. And he said then, and I think, and I show no disrespect for him because I think he was speaking actually in the interest of the country. He said, do you know last year, Graham, that, fish, uh, that fisheries brought in five million pounds into this country? That was, of course, the barometer on which they began to measure the difference between Maori values and, I suppose, this country's values. We had another conference in 1968, a national conference held at Auckland University. And at that stage, they came from all over the country, worrying about their fisheries. And uh, there was an old lady that came up from Taranaki, Sadie Karana, to try to preserve their fishing rights. We later met her when we were in the tribunal at Motunui. The council and the district council continued to press government right through to 1970. And at that stage, they said the Minister of uh, Maori Affairs, who was the Honourable Duncan McIntyre, said if you can show us how many, uh, if there's any acts that do not uh, take heed of the, the, the Treaty of Waitangi, would you produce them? So the Maori Council produced a paper showing 26 Acts of Parliament. 26 Acts of Parliament that in fact took no heed of the Treaty of Waitangi. Following on from that, we had a meeting with him and the then Minister of Justice. That was when Mr. Rata was uh, the spokesman on Maori Affairs the opposition. And I think it was at that stage that because of the frustrations of, a, of, of the people that the idea of a, the Waitangi Tribunal was born. In an attempt to, the, to give the people some redress on the acts that were going through Parliament. Having done that, we presented them to the Select Committee our submissions on the fisheries and they asked for these areas to be set aside but they asked for stricter conservation uh, rules to be applied. We asked that the shorelines be used 
on a form of a garden system that part of the shores be, be closed up while the others had chance to regenerate and to move around the shores. I took those submissions then to Maturata, who was the minister, who had then become the Minister of Māori Affairs. He referred me to Mr. Moyle, who was then the Minister of Marines. So I came to Whangare to make those submissions. And it may interest the tribunal that contained within those submissions, we asked that the 200-mile limit zone be placed in New Zealand. That came as a direct submission through the Taitagara District Council, through the New Zealand Māori Council, and back to the Minister of Marines. Recession, recession, recession. That's all we seem to be hearing these days. Whether it's on the six o'clock news, headlines in newspapers, or closure of well-loved iconic coffee houses. Or increased for lease signs in our business districts. You just can't get away from it. So how does that place Māori? Who on one hand are overrepresented in lower skilled occupations which are often the very first to feel the effects of an economic downturn. And on the other hand underrepresented in higher skilled occupations that tend to be able to ride out challenging economic times. Whichever way you look at it, Māori will be affected. Yet businessman Richard Jones, he's the chief executive of Potama Business Trust, has an interesting and some may say upbeat way of looking at it. Potama is an organisation that fosters the growth and development of micro Māori businesses, taking its name from a pattern that's used in tukutuku panels. This pattern looks like a staircase and you can see it on the inner walls of a whare tipuna. It flanks the doorway. So as you walk through the doorway and you look back... It's usually positioned above there. It represents the climbing towards goals that can be achieved through tenacity and diligence. And many iwi have stories that demonstrate that. According to Richard Jones, he has yet to see the evidence of the impact of the recession upon the Māori business community. And while they may be feeling the pinch, he reckons they are responding as they always do. By demonstrating the entrepreneurial skills of their tūpuna, coming up with innovative solutions and using their roro, or brain, to cope in tough times. Kote mea tuatahi, Richard. Uh, me kōrero mai i tō pēpeha. Uh, ko rangitou tō te maunga, ko waipā te awa, uh, te tōkanga nui a noho tōku marae, uh, ko Richard te harini Jones uh, tāku uh, uh, ingo. Kia ora, Richard. So, Richard, uh, Pautama Trust, it's a charitable trust, Niha, that's a service provider for the Māori business community. Who established Pautama Trust and, and why was it initially set up? Um, it was one of the initiatives that came out of the uh, 1984 Hui Tomata. So the trust was established in uh, 1988. So in July this year, we'll, we will be, uh, well, July the 5th this year, we will be 21 years old. And um, we were established as, uh, we were like the baby sister or baby brother of the Māori Development Corporation when that was around uh, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And our role was to basically, um, or Potama's role was to help stack up uh, business opportunities and if it were through feasibility studies or business plans, and then if if the proposition stacked up, it was handed on to the Māori Development Corporation for um, uh, financing. 
And at the time that it was set up, was it because there was a niche market to nurture the foundation of Māori business to, to help it grow further? I think at the time, and I wasn't involved in the setup, but I think at the time it was, you know, the people in that time could uh, clearly see that um, more and more Māori were, or Māori were entering, entering into business or were going to enter into, enter into business, that there were um, treaty settlements starting to come online. Um, and then other larger Māori organisations, trusts and corporations were also uh, moving, say, from passive uh, business activity to more active business activity. And so Potama Trust was, um, how can I put it, part of that Māori business renaissance? Yeah, I think um, yeah, we were at the beginning of that renaissance. Um, it was a fledging sort of uh, Māori business environment then, probably totally unknown, I guess. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, people that set it up had some foresight in doing that. And so, how old did you say? Twenty was it? Twenty six years old, Richard? Uh, Twenty one years old. Twenty one years yeah. old. And ha- from the early heyday to when it was uh, first established, how has Potama Trust grown in, in that twenty one years? If you could sort of put a in a nutshell, I suppose. I know it's a tough question. Well, um, I mean, in terms of internally, the organisation hasn't really grown at all. We've maintained a steady number of uh, a steady team of five of us ever since I've been in the organisation when I came into it in 1995. But the market we deal with has certainly grown, and, and in the mid 90s we had to sort of look at that market and decide where where should we focus because we couldn't we just didn't have the resources to be everything to everyone. So we. Um, it, sort of decided that we would focus more on the Māori micro-business uh, entrepreneur sector. Describe to me what the, what is uh, micro-business, um, uh, Richard? Well, the, the general term, I suppose, for micro-businesses is any sort of business that employs uh, up to five people, but they're generally um, an owner-operator type business, uh, what they you know, commonly hear, ma and pa type, uh, type business. Oh, so family-operated businesses. Well, family or individually, uh, usually it could be someone, say they might be a really good electrician, they've been working for someone else, and then they decide, well, yeah, I might go out on my own and, and uh, yeah, start a business with this. And that's how many of our sort of clients tend to go into business. So then would you say that Potama Trust tends to focus on micro-businesses as opposed to small businesses with 19 and under employees, large businesses, or is it a whole sort of wider scale? Is it from a little bit of employees to large businesses that pay time trust? In general, it's more the uh, micro-businesses, but in, during that time we've seen some of those micro-businesses turn into um, <laughs> larger businesses, yeah. such as Tamaki Tours, yes. Whale Watch, um, Animation Research. There's a few of them like that have gone on to employ a lot more people over time. So, Richard, I mean, given the the current, I mean, the recession is on everybody's mind, everybody's lips. How do you think the current recession is impacting or will impact on, on Māori businesses? We haven't seen a big impact yet. Um, and in some ways, I think that's maybe because Māori businesses being small or micro, they're pretty used to running lean. And so, yeah, they just uh, they just adapt to whatever the environment presents to them. But when you talk to them, a lot of them think uh, know that you know there's something going on. Uh, it hasn't quite hit them yet, but it will be. And I think the good thing that we've noticed, because we've been going out to our businesses and talking to them a lot lately, is that they're putting in uh, sort of plans and steps to 
help them manage their way through um, whatever is about to depend, descend on us or has descended upon us. I, an example of that is you, um, I talked with a cafe owner last week and cafes are in a pretty competitive Me Too sort of sector. And this is a young Māori woman, probably I think about 24 years old. So she's got a cafe and what she's doing is she's gone into out-catering and then she's also applied for a BYO licence so she could uh, offer evening meals. And so that, that's her way of um, sort of managing um, uh, change that may or may not happen with, with her business. Mm, and that's about diversifying, isn't it, Richard, to kind of you know, have your core business and then say, OK, um, how can I sort of offer more services or branch out here and branch out there? Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Another example is a T-shirt uh, shop they went and saw. Uh, they're going into um, allowing people to design their own T-shirts online, send the design to them, and they'll print it out and send it off to them. Wow, that's clever. It is clever, and then, but it's interesting how it impacts on different businesses. Another business I talked to is a funeral home, and they've said, yeah, they've noticed people cutting back on the little extras that they used to be able to provide, such as the choice of caskets, the service. You know, they'd maybe have the service in the funeral home. Now they might have the service at home. They'll get their own flowers or their own, um, rather than getting the funeral home to arrange all the flowers and the service. So she's noticing that that that, that those sort of cutbacks having an impact on her business. And this is, a, sorry, this is a lady that runs a, a funeral home? Yeah. Yep. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And I suppose, I mean, because, you know, a lot of Māori-run organisations um, have lack of resources. So when you have lack of resources, um, Richard, you tend to kind of use your initiative. So this is probably, in the recession, this is kind of kicked in. Yeah, well, that's what I mean, that, you know, that they're used to running lean, so they've always had to use the initiative and always had to think about you know, um, different scenarios for the business. Kapai. So, Richard, what advice are you, you... You spoke about a few good, really good examples there, cafe, the funeral home. What advice are you giving to business, Māori business owners in, in this um, current economic climate? It's really um, you're trying to tailor the advice to that specific uh, business, but there's a lot of generic advice out there, um, such as you know, cash flow is your lifeblood, and if you haven't got cash flow, you haven't got a business. So that's about managing you know, the costs, um, pay, pay, uh, their debtors and creditors, um, looking at um, customer service, how they can you know, how they can really um, improve on the customer service to keep people coming back and dealing with them. Um, so those are sort of the more generic sort of things that yeah. we're offering, and there's a whole range of business advice out, available out there that's free, that is online, so we're pushing all that information out to businesses. Yeah. And then with individually, when we talk to a business, we're asking, well, so what can Potoma do to help you? And so people are coming back with ideas. Um, you know, one idea is that we are currently uh, talking with Kiwi Bank about a partnership with them whereby Potoma could help the business with maybe with the interest payments on their loan or help them with a deposit to get a loan. Um, so we're just you know, scoping options at the moment and taking in a range of um, um, ideas that the businesses are feeding back to us. Mm. And talking about feedback from businesses, um, Richard, um, some people may not know that, but Potoma, I mean, you, you, there's only, what, five core um, employees of, of Potama Trust, and you're quite mobile. You you visit and you travel a lot around Aotearoa, near. Yeah, pretty much. We, yeah, the the whole um, organisation is run off what I like to call a platform of uh, technology and mobility. So yeah, email, online stuff yep. is really important to us, and then being mobile. So most of our advisors are out in the regions, or yeah, we do a, a lot of travel. 
Yes. Um, because that's the best way you get to understand how the businesses are going when you go and see them in action. Yes. It's about kānohi ki te kānohi, yeah, eh, face-to-face. Yeah, that's face. the big thing with it, the whole organisation. But, yeah, we're small. Uh, we don't have a huge amount of resources, so we don't, you know, we don't get out there and it's almost impossible for us to go and see every business, but um, we're out on the road pretty regularly. I saw an item on the news the other day, uh, Richard, about debt collectors and for the because of the recession, there's a bit of a boom time for debt collectors because yeah. you know people aren't making their payments with their cars and things are being repossessed. Um, as as a as Potama Trust, you helping businesses. Is it a particularly busy time for you? Um, it's it, no, it's it's probably more for from our point of view. It's more us going out to the businesses mm. and getting information from us. We we are expecting more and more people to contact us. Yes. But we're trying to preempt that by getting out there, pushing information out, so rather they, they come to us before things start to hit the wall, so we're, we're not the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff <laughs> yeah. uh, thing with them. So we're trying to get out to them and say, communicate with us, get in touch with us, mm. and talk to us about how things are going with your business. Because, I mean, there must be a few scared business people out there. I dare say there are, and you know, if you look at Māori, the Māori small businesses, a lot of them are in... Uh, Sectors that um, like tourism, yes, uh, the creative sector, the arts and crafts. You, you've heard um, that uh, Television New Zealand is going to lay people off. Ninety cutbacks, yeah. A lot of people in the Maori uh, television and film sector. Um, so I dare say that they may be affected. Um, with our tourism operators, a lot of them are in isolated locations off the beaten tourism trail. But the thing with them is that they're used to lean times, and they always got other things going on as well. They're not solely reliant on one thing. Does it concern you that the D word may crop up another couple of years, and by D I mean depression? What we're trying to do is stay away. Well, you know, we know when you listen to the media, it's all doom and gloom. Yeah, it is. And so we're trying to sort of stay away from saying those sort of words to people out there. Um, yeah, I'm surely, um, for sure, it's on my mind. It's a possibility out there, but um, we're trying to be more positive and emphasise or talk to the business about what are the opportunities. I mean, this is a cycle. We're going through a particularly different cycle at this moment, but there's going to be an upside. So we're talking to them about, well, let's, you know, let's get prepared for this upside so that when it happens, you're Māori are on the crest of the wave instead of the wave crashing down upon us. Kia ora, Richard. So, Richard, um, John Keyes, the recent job summit um, held here in Wellington, came up with some initiatives to stimulate the employment sector, like um, the nine-day fortnight um, integrated approach with Māori secondary and tertiary education. What ways do you think um, can be utilised to stimulate Māori business growth in today's in the recession? Well, certainly uh, with our, um, say, in our Māori primary sector, we see big opportunities and we're only scratching the surface of, of the latent potential of collectivisation amongst Māori, say, Māori farm trusts. I mean, we're working on a sheep and beef collective at the moment, a dairy collective, and we've got some innovative uh, things happening in the Māori primary sector. And the other area that we do, we do a big, a lot of work with, with the um, micro small business sector is the networking, both nationally and internationally and regionally. So internationally, we've just uh, got some Māori businesses uh, going to do some work for some Aboriginal uh, groups in Australia. Um, so we're just trying to you know, bring together all our sort of relationships, um, leveraging and brokering of, um, of those relationships to try and help the businesses out. So given the recession, final question, Richard, given the recession, do you think it's a bad time for Māori entrepreneurs to set up business? 
It depends what they're going into, yeah. depends on their skills and depends on their resources. I believe there's some uh, opportunities out there now uh, in these times that um, you need to be searched through. Um, one, you know, I don't know if you heard of the term uh, minipreneurs. 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 No, they're what does that mean? There's a minipreneurs. So, yeah, and just reading through that sort of stuff. So the opportunity for, and it's already been out there for a while now, is people taking advantage of, say, trade me to, to sort of start trading online and, and running a sort of business on the side while they've got the, still got their day job. I think there's a few of those cool. opportunities coming up that people are getting into. Yep, yep. Um, and I certainly think believe that um, there's untapped potential in inter-Indigenous business opportunities. Uh, so that's why we've been going into Australia and Canada, uh, working with Indigenous groups over there to try and get um, some collective activity going. Um, but yeah, I think it comes back to the skill of the individual and the resources they've got behind them to, to be able to take advantage or identify, assess and take advantage of any opportunities that they see before them. And on that note, thank you very much, Richard, for your time. You're welcome. Chief Executive of Māori Business Potama Trust, Richard Jones or Justine Murray. And don't forget at our website there are details about the Trust and why not listen to past programmes. That's at our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika. One thing Aotearoa isn't short on, and that's festivals that celebrate and showcase our connections in the Pacific. Last week it was Pacifica, and over the past four days in Auckland, it's been the ASB Polyfest. This is huge. And if you want to watch 8,000 secondary-age kids from schools around Auckland shine, this is the event you go to. Kia ora, Tanya. Kia ora. Uh, ko te mea tua tahi, Tanya. Ko wai koe no hea koe. Ko Tanya aho, ko director or ASB Polyfest. Kia ora, Tanya. So, um, Tanya, tell me what your role is all about at the um, Polyfest. Uh, my role here is really just to oversee, if you like, the um, festival for the ASB Polyfest. And uh, we have six stages uh, that is involved in the festival itself. Um, and pretty much those stages run themselves. They have stage coordinators and a number of people involved in the organisation behind the scenes for those particular stages. Uh, my role is to make sure that the event itself runs smoothly so that we can ensure that our young people uh, can shine. Kapai Tanya. Now there is a Fakatoki Tanya and it's a Matahuruhuru o te Manu Karere, which means from the birds of the feather we shall fly. It's also attributed to money. From money or putia, then we shall be successful. And um, with the Pacifica last week, money was an issue because they faced a funding cut, something like $100,000. Being so close together last week, Pacifica, this week, Polyfest, has, has there been a competitiveness between both organising committees to, to get money? That's a difficult question to answer, I think. I think um, it's probably fair to say that because both events uh, involve performance of sorts, um, then obviously we would be applying to similar funding organisations, uh, particularly the trusts. And um, so it, it is tough out there. And I think just given the, the way that things are... Um, and with the recession, et cetera, I think uh, there's a smaller pool of money sitting there. So it's always going to be difficult. It's always going to be a challenge. But in particular, we found it quite challenging this year, as, as, as have our people in Pacifica. Mm, because would it be difficult at this time to forecast next year's Polyfest in terms of money, putia? 
Um, yeah, well, we've already met, and um, it's always working in conjunction with the host school, um, uh, and uh, we're looking at ways and means of being, um, I guess, looking outside the square and seeing how we can raise funds. Um, we've been really fortunate in that we've got a family, and I call them, they're like a whanau, if you like, um, of sponsors. Many of them have been on board with the festival for many, many years. And it is about um, those relationships and building them and ensuring that there's some sort of sustainability there. So that's been a crucial thing that's, that's helped us, I guess, um, with the festival over many years. And we will continue developing those relationships. Along with that, we are kind of looking outside the square and looking at other options in terms of being able to uh, raise money, if you like, um, for our young people. Rio Hemopo was part of the Roots Dub trilogy that included Warren Maxwell and Ricky Gooch. Trinity Roots. Now remember Justine, these fellas used to do waiata that at times lasted for, this is a single waiata mind you, <laughs> that lasted from anything from 10 to 20 minutes. That took music solo to a whole new experience, eh? Sometime Tiahika field reporter Melody Thomas caught up with him last year just after he got back from performing at the Red Bull Academy. Now, like the Polyfest, this event is huge. 60 musicians from around the world are selected to participate. They go through an application process, and if you're one of the My name's Rio, affiliated to Tuwharetoa. Um, through my mum, my dad's actually from Niue, uh, from Alofi and Avasele. And yeah, choice, good to be here. See, I'm interested as well, because when I looked at your name, I was like, all those Pākehā people are just pronouncing it wrong, and it's actually Rio, but it's not, is it? No, 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 no. So where's it from? You're not Mario, are you? Yep, yep, (gasps) that's my full name, but my nickname, which uh, my grandfather gave to me, was Rio, and then that's kind of stuck since, yeah, since time immemorial. (laughs) (laughs) Do people break out Mario? Yeah, 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 definitely, like, old school friends... Some some know me as Rio, and then you know, uh, others will be like Mario, and I'll be like, "Hey, like damn," because that was kind of like, you know, how your parents use your full name when you when you get in in trouble. <laughs> so it has that kind of connotation of, "Oh damn, I'm in trouble. I'm in okay, sorry, sit in the corridor." But most people will surely know you from Trinity Roots uh, at yep. this stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's probably the most kind of immediate. Association with. <laughs> so, was that the beginning of your musical career there? Um, I think probably when I was about 12, uh, 12 or 13, I was um, playing in a country music club. Um, my mum had joined and uh, they had no bass player at the time. So, that was kind of the introduction for me to, to bass. And then my uncle um, had a band back in Tomaranui and he moved to Aussie and I started playing with his old band it was, yeah funny because like uh, I was often stuck outside the pubs and clubs and stuff because they didn't believe that I was in the band you know it'd be classic turn up and start taking gear and and then be stopped by the doorman 
you know, it's like you can't come in. You'd be like, uh, I'm playing in the band. So like, yeah, whatever. You know, like just be stuck there until one of the band members actually realised that I wasn't there and would come out looking for me. So did you move to Wellington and then stumble upon the boys of Trinity Roots or were you pulled down here because of them? No, no, no. I actually came down to um, study at the conservatorium. But prior to that, I was like doing seasonal jobs and working in the freezing works and abattoirs and uh, haymaking and scrub cutting and uh, sharing sheds and stuff, like, you know, just the typical rural holiday jobs, you know. So what did you do for a job when you got to Wellington then? There's not an abundance of sharing sheds or... No, no, no. I actually was uh, a student for the first six months because I I, uh, um, did the foundation course after auditioning for the jazz school and then um, after that finished I got a job washing dishes down at the Park Royal yeah kind of kept that on even when I started doing the um, degree course but I scored a job in room service which was cool (laughs) (laughs) you might have some fun stories from that yeah 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 some funny stories um, like uh, Tina Turner and dudes like, like all these funny people who stay in the hotel and the good thing about room service was that you didn't actually have to be a waiter as such. You know, you just, uh, when the meals were ready, took them up to the room and that was, you know, it was like so simple. Did you, did you get to meet Tina? Yep, 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 like briefly, like, you know, about 30 seconds of, hello, uh, where would you like this? <laughs> <laughs> Can you just sign this docket, please? <laughs> you know, like, well, man. No, but also it was, my breast. <laughs> it was funny, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll just shave a spot for you. <laughs> Between the split of Trinity Roots and then uh, Red Bull, what did you do for that what, year and oh, a half? Um, a lot of uh, recordings um, recorded with Holly Smith on her EP, various other recording projects. Started to play with um, Brakes Cop on in the live um, band, which saw us kind of tour around New Zealand um, initially with Golden Horse and then um, that led on to uh, heading out to England and spending six months out there touring and uh, doing crazy gigs and um, I thought I'd seen some crazy venues in New Zealand and then England was just like another level of madness like man I don't know who was booking some of the early gigs but they were just crazy like you're stuck to the floor you know they were full on rock and roll venues like the only thing missing was the chicken wire you know that was kind of like man <laughs> so, uh, breaks had signed to parlophone over in the uk which is like you know the beatles and um radiohead and like, like serious label kind of stuff which was cool for me too which, uh, like to see that side of the industry because trinity had been like independent you know we did everything ourselves so it was um it was nice to kind of see what's on the other side of the fence and how it runs. Although, I don't know if I'd do it myself. (laughs) Was it that different? It sounds like you ended up in places where you could have quite easily booked yourself anyway. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Or avoided booking. Red Bull Music Academy, just to clarify with our listeners before we go into your time there, is an event that's hosted all around the world in a different place each year and where a select um, number of musicians are invited from a lengthy application process 
to come and join and it's two weeks of quite intense lectures as well as getting into the studios with some legends and some of I'm sure your heroes so this year you were in Toronto I believe with Mara TK yeah yeah that was pretty cool and you were asked back as a tutor no 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 I went back as a uh, a recording artist right yeah 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 how, um, how does that work that was in South Africa yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. They've just started this thing, um, a follow-on from the academies, which started last year. Uh, it's a class of its own, is the kind of umbrella name for the project. And it, um, they have about six to eight previous participants from the academy um, come together. And they'll, uh, again, like the academy, it's moves. So last year it was in Berlin. This year they had it in Cape Town. And the nature of Red Bull and, and kind of they, they host it so well that uh, we got a, a warped view both of Toronto and Cape Town in terms of like you just kind of so well looked after. How did your experiences in Cape Town change how you thought about, you know, multicultural, bicultural relations in New Zealand? And It, uh, it was interesting to see the, the similarities in the stories that they were telling. I mean... I think if you probably lived around the times of um, Parihaka and stuff, then then the parallels would be probably a lot closer, you know. Where, whereas I guess for our generation, which is hasn't had that sort of quite like full on experience of it, it seems a little bit more kind of shocking, I guess, to think that it was only, you know, I don't know, fifteen years ago that they, they were, you know, fully under apartheid. I mean, I love the fact that um, you can jump on a bus in, uh, in Wellington, like, you know, in, in Newtown, and actually have, like, a diverse kind of mix of people on the bus, like, you know, people from Africa, you know, like, you know, it's like, it's quite amazing. It's like, I, I actually like that, you know. Um, I don't know, the Winston Peters supporters of the world may not find that as kind of uh, as a good thing, but it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's pretty amazing. After Red Bull, was that kind of the kicking the ass that you needed to start doing your own thing? Um, no, I'd done that before, uh, uh, going with breaks, actually. So that started the the recordings. It's funny because um, although they've only just kind of surfaced, I guess, now, they, they were actually done and uh, Moo and I had worked on and finished them probably a year at least before they actually came out. And then there's the whole process of like uh, having the vinyl um, mastered and uh, pressed. It's just nice having a, a nice piece of vinyl. And the the purpose of having the vinyl was to actually give it out to DJs and have it uh, kind of um, reach an audience through that kind of medium, you know, as opposed to it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah you know. Yeah, just 10 bucks for the gas tanks, and yeah, I'll grab that seat. Yeah, yeah, it looks all right. Yeah, sweet, you know, kind of. You mentioned an album, a next album, a full-length album just before. Yeah, 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 yeah. When's yep. that happening? Was um, another, like, four years off, like the last another one? Another four years. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, quite possibly. It's all about building the anticipation. <laughs> um, Start there. Yeah, 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 yeah. You heard it here. There is an album. Mario Rio Himapo with Melody Thomas. Anaya Tanya Kroria with the Nga tikanga iwe o te nui. Many cultures, one world. The Fakatoki itself this year is is very fitting. It's the bringing together of peoples 
in one place for a common purpose. And our purpose is all about our youth and providing a platform, a stage by which they can perform and show us who they, re who they are as young people, how dynamic they are, the skills that they have, the beliefs, the traditions. It is a beautiful platform for them to be able to perform. And when we bring five stages together, as well as a diversity stage, all in one place for that one common purpose, uh, the Whakatauke fits that beautifully. That's us. Next week I'm at Ōpihi, that's in South Canterbury, checking out rock art. And I'm back to Mariah. Hi. He miki nā kai kōrero, me nā kai rā wiki wiki mīini. Mai te whānau ātia hi kā kia tātou katoa. Mauri ora.